Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What is up, my friends? We got a special episode for you today from last week's Future Proof Festival. I recorded live with Steve Romick, portfolio manager for the FPA Crescent Fund. Steve's also one of my favorite portfolio managers to read and talk to. and He's also just an all-around good dude. In today's episode, Steve shares the view of the world, where he sees value today. He explains why he owns Google and Comcast and CarMax, even some SPACs and convertible bonds. Then he updates us on investments we discussed on his first appearance on the podcast way back in 2019, including one of my favorites, farmland and even container ships. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. It's always exciting when YChart releases a new enhancement to the platform, and just recently they launched the new attribution analysis tool. It can help you see what's driving a portfolio's performance displayed with quick hitting and easy to understand heat map and bar chart views. You can use this for funds, ETFs, and model portfolios and see a quick screenshot of the top eight contributors and detractors over any time period or look at the full attribution table. I've used it to check out some of the strategies and love how easy it is to use. For current YChart users, you're likely already familiar with the power of their report builder and proposal generation offerings. Now you can integrate attribution tables and visuals into your proposals to help tailor the investment story that resonates with your clients. Check out this new feature for yourself and get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial by going to ycharts.com slash meb dash Faber or just click the link in the show notes for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with FBA Funds, Steve Romick. Well, what's new, man? Last time you were around, things hadn't got weird yet, so no covid no war in Europe. You've been at this for a while. 1996? No, I started in 85 working for a hedge fund and then started my own firm about five years later and started the mutual fund, the FBA Crescent Fund in 93. And then the 96 date is when I merged those assets into First Pacific Advisors. So I've been doing it a long time. I mean, you got to be one of the longest consistent mutual fund managers out there. Have you run that stat? I think we are pretty close. Ryan Leggio is out there and he could, he could answer that question if I'm we're pretty close to it. All right. So you've seen a few things. What was the last couple of years like? 
starting after we chatted. Let's call it starting 2019. What's the world been like? What's going on? I have four daughters, and so COVID, everybody at home, it's been, it's been, it's been horrible. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you meant investing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, as value investors, you know, we're looking for, you know, to really generate, you know, returns with a certain margin of safety. And, and look, going into COVID, you know, your portfolio looks one way. And, and if you own a hotel company, you looked, you, know, you didn't underwrite for 7% occupancy. So things were a little painful for a little bit, but we ended up, you know, being ultimately correct. So it created some opportunities along the way. But what's interesting is over the, even predating COVID is, is since the great financial crisis, we've been living in this period of unusually low rates. I mean, Edward Chancellor has a new book out now. You can look at interest rates going back, you know, 5,000 years. I wouldn't really hang your hat on that, the statistics, you know, back going back more than a millennia. But be that as it may, you, you know, we've never had rates this low and rates being this low pervert any capital allocation decision for, for companies who are deciding to make an acquisition or invest in a new factory or buy a piece of equipment for investors who who are looking to buy you know, stocks or, or, or used to buying conservative bonds and all of a sudden can't anymore because they can't get the yield, particularly because they can't keep up with, their, with, you know, with inflation. And we're dealing with negative rates. And even with this rise in rates that we've seen recently, we're still dealing with negative rates. So all capital allocation decisions have been, have been perverted. So we're living in this period of, of government-managed capitalism where the people who are in charge are kind of hoping that their, kind of their theoretical arguments will alchemize into reality. So it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to know what to do. And for us, what we really try and do is just to always take a, a, a page out of the conservatism book and make sure that we've underwritten whatever is we're writing, whatever we're looking to invest in conservatively. So we are hopefully we'll be right under a range of outcomes. So you describe yourself as a value investor, but you guys do a lot of different stuff. And we're going to talk about a handful of them today eventually. But give us like when you kind of describe yourself to a advisor may not know about y'all, like, what's the framework? When you say value investor, yes, I get the umbrella, but like, what does that really mean for you guys? It means avoiding permanent impairments of capital. It doesn't mean a, we're trying to seek some kind of mark-to-market protection. You know, by and large, it's given us more downside protection the way we invest, but that's a, a byproduct of our process. Most importantly, we want to make sure we avoid permanent impairments of capital, and we're willing to accept some volatility along the way in order to get those equity rates of return that we seek you know, in our portfolios. But to do that, you just have to invest with a margin of safety. Make sure the asset you're buying, whether it be a stock or a bond, it has to be a, something that gives you some protection. You can't buy it at, at your net asset value. You have no protection that way. So I was talking to a friend earlier, we'll call him Bill because that's his name, but you know, we were talking about he's also a maligned value investor. And we were saying, you know, how do you, when you think about something, you have a position and you think you have this margin of safety and that sucker goes down, you know, painful, let's call it like 20, 40, 50%. And, you know, you're like, I have my thesis, but you're down 50%. Something particularly like COVID hits where like the rules change a little bit, not only the rules, but the, the environment macro just shifts. You're like unclear what's going to happen. How do you think about that as a portfolio manager? Well, every day I start with the fact that how could I be wrong? Yeah. And, and then it gets magnified in periods. I say that to my like, wife and I'm like, how could I possibly be wrong? <laughs> my wife and I'm like, what do you mean? That? It's an impossibility. But let's hear it. So you're... So look, we, you know, we're, guaranteed, we're guaranteed to be wrong at times. There's no, there, nobody has a, a batting average of a thousand. And, and so it's not even a question. So we're always constantly underwriting and re-underwriting everything that we own even outside of the events like COVID. And so we just want to make sure we've done our work right. So if, if something going down 
20%. That could just be noise. I mean, stocks can move around 20% you know, over the course of a month and come back the next month. And that's what 50% is, is obviously significant. And you have to you know, test your assumptions again and again. And, and you have to ask yourself the question, I mean, what's permanently changed because of COVID? You know, is there something that, you know, we didn't underwrite correctly because of COVID that is going to, that's going to be a permanent, that could create a permanent pyramid of capital. But if you're Marriott, you know, Marriott's still going to be Marriott 10 years from now, we believed. And so we started buying Marriott in COVID when people were hating it. Stock was down from 140 something, goes down to 80 and change. And, you know, we looked really stupid at first because it broke 60, you know, before too long. But we did our work and we kept buying and we look correct today. We look, we look correct not that long thereafter, but you have to make sure you do that work. And so to do that work, you have to understand not only the the business well and the competition the landscape in that industry, you do have to understand some of the macro variables that could impact you, you know, certainly. But most importantly, understand that company, that management team, that industry. In order to do that, it's been a lot of time reading and reading some more. And we even have an analyst on our team who's uh, who's a journalist who's whose job is to really understand more of the qualitative variables and help us find experts in the field and ex-employees talk about this management team or employees of other corporations that are in the industry to help us understand what that business is and how good these people are, the company we're trying to buy. You know, I think a lot about being in environments where the vast majority of people that are managing money had not experienced something like that. So the environment where we hit almost negative rates in the US, like pretty weird, negative sovereign. We are negative rates, real. We're still negative. Right, real. So coming out of COVID, coming out into the last year, how are you thinking about the world? By the way, one of the cool things that Steve and his company does is they publish for the fund percent of assets across for like 14 categories. And not only percent of assets, percent of assets going back to like inception. (laughs) So for better or worse, but it's really cool because you guys aren't just letting these suckers float. So Talk to us about 2022. Rates are coming up. What's the world look like to you? Because you've been a little active. Yeah, I mean, look, inflation's real. Where it normalizes, we don't know. But you have to ask yourself the question as an investor. You know, our money is alongside our clients. You have to ask, we have to ask yourself the question, would we rather be in cash? And you know, every day is a decision. Do you want to be in cash or not in cash? If you're not in cash, what ask the class do you want to be in? And for us, as we try and think about, you know, make that decision right now, we look at and see there's a lot of inflation. We've been talking about inflation for more than, you know, since the great financial crisis in 08, 09. So clearly it took a long time to rear its head and cash is worth less every year. But if you own stocks, you also could see markdowns in your portfolio, you know, periodically that are maybe not inconsequential across your portfolios if you're investing with different managers. And that can be very disconcerting to people. But for us, you know, we look at it and say it's it's part of we'd you know part of life. We'd rather be invested more than not because inflation is real. We don't want to have that cash burden in a hold our pocket and be worth less every single year. And so, if you own these good businesses, they were confident are going to be earning more money and will be more valuable, you know, five ten years from now. And we're paying a good, you know, good price for those. Better yet, a great price. Then we'll we'll allocate capital to those kinds of equities. And the same can hold true of of debt. One of the things you talk about these different categories, we've been big distressed debt and high yield investors over a lot of years, going back to the 80s. And you know, back in the days when Drexel still had junk bond conferences. And we've used to own a lot, double digits in, in high yield. And in the financial crisis, we went from 
you know, low single digits, mid single digits and high yield and distress to more than 30% over three, four months. So we really will move the portfolio around a lot when we see the opportunities. But with rates coming down like this and when government's stepping in and backstopping companies with, you know, with different stimulus packages, we just haven't seen the opportunity. And for us, it's been more like return-free risk. So that as an asset class has not been very attractive. And we've begun to see some more opportunities in bonds and public bonds, you know, in recent in the recent months. So that's been, you know, how we we're looking to position the portfolio is more in equities than not. Some in debt that we've been seeing opportunities, and we still have a lot of cash because the world's not dirt cheap. Yeah. Last time you were on, we talked a bit about the Googleplex, and I see that's still holding. What are, what are some other themes, names, just general opportunities on the U.S. stock front, sectors? On the stock front, you know, we've, we, we bought Google, and we're value investors. How do you argue that Google's a value stock? Well, we bought it back originally back in 2011 at a point in time where the company was trading at, you know, 11-ish times earnings net of its cash. And today, it's still not an expensive stock. If you back out the cash, and you make adjustments for their, their non-earning assets, you know, their moonshot portfolios, et cetera portfolio singular, I mean. And we've seen a number of different businesses that are, you know, busted tech stocks, you know, as, as, you know, thematically that we've been able to, I know your question was about equities, but when this market downturn, we've been buying busted convertible bonds of, of various companies that businesses that, you know, are, have been a lot, a lot of headlines of stocks, stocks are down 50, 70, 90%. And some of these bonds were trading with this great, you know, very, very low yield with a great expectation that the option value with the conversion, you know, price that's coming to the stock you could get maybe one day was going to pay off. And I mean, you're, you're getting yields of uh, these bonds were issued with a quarter point, half a point, three quarters of a point yields. And we didn't buy any of them. Now we're getting yields of nine to 11%. And we think that's a pretty attractive, you know, rate of return for these businesses that we think are good businesses. Other themes in there, some people have been- Is, is, that, is that mostly tech or is that that's just most, that, that, things those, that have those just been pummeled? Those are tech and related, you know, tech and related, or, you know, I say tech and related, I mean, not creators of tech, but users of tech, you know, new business disruptor called the disruptor business models. You know, we've got a good size position. Our number two position, if you look at them together, would be our cable companies, Comcast and Charter. And there's a lot of fear that surrounds these companies. There's fear of competition. And, you know, using Charter as an example, Charter's market cap today you know, it's give or take 65, 68 billion dollars. And the fear for Charter Cable, one of the second largest cable company in the country, Comcast being slightly larger, the big fear, you know, for these companies is just a lot of competition. The side of their business that was the video side, the cord cutting, was you know, create a lot of fear in people. But these companies don't really make any money on the video side. It's a variable cost business. And every time that somebody disconnects, they don't have to pay Disney as much for ESPN. They don't have to go and, you know, uh, roll out a truck to go and repair the repair uh, the boxes or send new boxes, which are a huge capital investment. 5G is not a real risk because if you have a conference call, you know, and it's an important call, you're not going to do it on a cell phone if you don't have to. You're going to do it with your broadband. And they're in the broadband business and they're very successful in the broadband business and nobody you know, else out there has a business as good as the cable business in terms of delivering a consistent signal. Now, the fiber to the home is a real competitor. 5G is not, you know, in our view, but fiber to the home is. But even with that, we think that these businesses are are still going to do quite well, even with overbuilds in certain markets. And so we expect in something like a charter that more than half of their market cap will come back to you in one form or the other in free cash flow over the next five years. And there's not a lot of companies you can say that about where more than half the market cap should come back to you in free cash flow over the next five years. That's pretty darn attractive. Sounds like a good screen. 
you don't see a lot of them. It's going to be a very yeah. small screen. Yeah. Give us a couple more uh, ideas you're thinking about in the U.S., and then we'll start to hop over. So because of so many of these tech stocks getting killed, if you're invested in those businesses, it's been very, very problematic. But if you haven't been, and we've managed to avoid most of that carnage, thankfully, but there's a lot of businesses that have been benef- or beneficiaries of the slowdown and the disruption. And a business that I've been following since they first existed as part of Circuit City, you know, back in the 90s is, is CarMax. And, and CarMax is a business that sells used cars retail, and they also make car loans. It's economically sensitive, particularly on the uh, used car loan side with almost $17 billion loan book. So in a recession, they're going to get hurt. We don't have a full position because in a recession, we would expect that the company would would go down. So we talk about how you know what we'd like to own and how long we're willing to own. We think about permanent impairments of capital. We think about entry points. And we think there's going to be better entry points along the way, but there's no guarantee of that. And it's attractive enough at the price that we bought it, which is not, which is very close to where the current market is. We first started buying it in late spring. But this is a business at CarMax that sells used retail, used wholesale, and they got the auto loans. They're over earning on their auto loan side. Their used car side, they've they've got I probably say they're under earning a little bit on that side. They got massive investment because everybody's aware that used car prices have gone through the roof. And so for them to sell a used car, they've got to have a lot more inventory in the future. That will be less. That could be three plus dollars a share. And they got a wholesale side that I think is a, is a growth engine. And because the likes of pedal lift and most significantly broom and most significantly Carvana aren't doing well, that's gives them another lease on time on life to really perfect their omni-channel experience. Yeah. How much of the time when you're looking at some of these companies where it's CarMax or, or Comcast, et cetera, where it looks so great, and how much of it is like, you're like, I'm just waiting for the market to realize this value? Or is there often like a, you're like, no, look, what the market sees is wrong in this capacity. We have a value-added insight that the market doesn't understand. Like if you put it into the Venn diagram buckets, like is there a more traditional place most of these names end up in? It's a great question, but I think it's a, it's specific to a company or industry in a moment in time. Yeah. So I think it, it's true and it's not true. Sometimes things are undiscovered. It's rare. You know, more often than not, they're, they're misunderstood. And when they're misunderstood, it's because there's a lot of fear and fear creates price action. It creates a lot of fear, you know, selling as a result of, of people fearful that these businesses are going to you know, erode, like in the case of, of the cable companies. And so it remains to be seen if we're right. We can't promise anybody we're right, you know, but we believe we're right over the long term. We've done, we've made a, we've done pretty well with them so far, but uh, even though they've come back a lot, they're still well above our cost. And we think it's their, their good opportunities, but there's no guarantee, as I said, you know, that we are right. But there's also another fear, which is a fear of missing out, that fear of that, that FOMO that people get. And when they have that, they, a lot of these companies end up going up in price because people just, you know, are buying something because, oh, it's like the Peter Lynch principle, which is, you know, buy where you know and buy where you shop. And you can buy these businesses that are going up because even though the business models are unproven, I mean, Carvana might be fine over five to 10 years. It very well could be. But, you know, I have this environment today where the stock's down almost 90-ish percent, a little less after today, being up 10%. We don't own Carvana. But the debt on Carvana trades with double-digit yields. So it's almost in conflict, one would think, you know, compared to the equity in this environment. As we look around the market, do you see any landmines, any areas in the U.S. where you're like, look, some of these things are down 80 90%, but it's, it's still dumpster fire? Are there other areas where you're worried about? Or is it more opportunity than not at this point? 
there's always landmines. Yeah. You know, you just you can name them. I don't see you have any shorts right now. What's going on? We you don't have, we don't do a you lot of time. Well, but at we used times to short, we used to short more than we do now. Now with inflation, you can be nominally right and real wrong. Yeah. Right? Because even a stock might go up. If, the, if, if you have massive inflation, stocks can rip and the shorts might not go up as much, but they can still be going up. Yeah. So we're very, very cautious about that. And the problem also with shorting is the asymmetry isn't there. So you really have to be more precise about it because, you know, by asymmetry, I mean, it's like all you can make is 100%. And that's if you're perfect, right? You'll be, you're, the stock will go bankrupt if you really held it all the way to the very end. And not how often do you get that right? And it's also tax inefficient because you don't get the benefit of capital gains. Yeah. So we try and, you know, we try and think about tax efficiency as well. So yeah, there's landmines out there. There's a lot of these businesses are, you know, that are, are still unproven business models. And, you know, again, they might be okay, but I think one has to be very, very careful of that. We're, there's a lot of stories, oh, we should go buy mall REITs because they can be redeveloped into something else. And we're like, yeah, but they could be, but it's going to require billions and billions of dollars to turn them into something else. So that's not something that, a play that we would, you know, we would participate in. Yeah. Shorting's tough. One of the areas you've been creeping up lately is um, beyond our borders, foreign stocks. Is that kind of a macro situation? Is it because the dollar has been ripping up? Is it just opportunity? What's going on? We try and understand the best businesses around the globe, and not all of them are in the US. The, the rest of the world is on average cheaper than the United States. Now, part of that's for good reason, because in Europe, for example, there's not, you don't have the big you know, tech franchises that you have, have here in the US. You don't have the, you know, the Googles and, you know, of the world. And, and uh, a lot of these companies like Netflix is here, even though Netflix has had their share of of headlines, you know, of late. But if you look across the the Atlantic, you you have businesses that they don't have a lot of those kinds of businesses. You have Spotify, but Spotify doesn't own their customer in the same way that some of these other businesses do because they're so dependent upon, you know, just to the tune of around almost three quarters of their business, dependent upon the big publishers, the you you know, the Universal Music Groups and Sony ATVs, Warner's, etc. But there are still are good cheap businesses for these foreign analogs. So if you can find a U.S. company and you can find a similar kind of business outside the U.S., on average, it's trading less expensively outside the U.S. And in part, that's fears about about what might happen next in the wars in Europe, what might happen, you know, regulatorily, you know, or or you know, government intervention, you know, uh, involvement in 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 the Pacific Rim. Will will China, you know, go on vacation to Taiwan like Putin's been on vacation to Ukraine? I mean, there's all these fears. Yeah. And so we just we don't know what's going to happen. But our job is, and we're, you know, is to take advantage of dislocation, you know, and these shares. But many of these companies, although they're based outside the United States, you know, it doesn't mean they're they're actually foreign companies per se. Many of them have just as much in the sale, sales in the U.S. as many U.S. companies have. So we really think more of revenue domicile than we do of you know country where they're based. Yeah, you know, Morningstar actually has a pretty good modules that talk about this. And in your recent webinar, you guys kind of went into this where. You know, the, the geography seemingly is becoming less and less important on the domicile. I mean, you have stocks in the UK that are the index that have no UK sales, right? And on and on and on examples. Are there any particular countries, regions, sectors, names you think are, are pretty interesting? I mean, you know, the emerging markets is a lower percent, but it's been an up and down for you guys. Anything particularly interesting? There are some companies that are particularly interesting, but they're, they're smaller cap names and they're names that are harder for, I think, for people to want to own because of the illiquidity of them. And we're limited into the, the position sizing. So I don't really want to talk about them in a public forum, but I think the better opportunities- This is private. This is private. Yeah. yeah. Everyone here- My closest friends. Agreed to put their <laughs> phones in a box. I think that some of these companies that are 
based outside of the US and they're in or liquid are really attractive, smaller, mid-sized companies in Europe, where there's a lot of recession fears. There's a lot of attractive opportunities, I think. You guys uh, do anything in China at all? There's a big China panel tomorrow, big debate. You guys... Uh... We own some businesses that are, you know, some Chinese-based businesses, but it's not a very large, you know, part of our portfolio. Before we get this opened up to questions, of the weird stuff, last time you and I were rapping, farmland investing wasn't cool, and now it's kind of cool. People are starting to have come around. You guys still own a little bit? I mean, it's tough with a big public We own vehicle. a little bit. Look, we have a public fund. For those less we have a public fund. We do some privates in the fund. We've had an investment in farmland going back going back a decade. We also do a fair amount. Of, we have done historically a fair amount in private credit, which I think is particularly interesting today, particularly asset-based private credit to the degree, to the extent that you can access vehicles like that. But farmland... You know, the portfolio manager of our funds, you know, the one who had responsibility for farmland, you know, didn't do a very good job of underwriting the manager. And that would be me. Um, the manager has not been a great, you know, has not been great. He made one strategic error in one of the, in the, in, in swaps, some great Missouri farmland. They paid a 5.3% or so cap rate, sold it a 3.7% cap rate and swapped it into some Florida, you know, farmland that was permanent crops as opposed to row crops. And it was not a good trade. So we're, we're going to make money, but it hasn't been as good as we would like. I think the best way to access farmland, and I'm a big believer in, in farmland as part of a diversified you know, portfolio, robust to multiple outcomes, but it's easier to add, you know, own just farms directly to the extent that people can own good farms. Yeah. I wouldn't own anything in California because, the, because you need farm, you know, agriculture's water. And we just don't have the water. I felt that way for the decades. So we've, I've avoided California, but there's a lot of really good farmland. It's like it's. I rather own that than gold. So you get the current yield, you get you get inflation. You know, uh, inflation bumps along the way, and the appreciation has gone up a lot since uh, you know the war in in the Ukraine because you know Russia and Ukraine are breadbaskets in the world, and the supply has been curtailed because of that. And prices, along with input costs going up, have really really jacked farmland prices up. So it's a little probably a little bit more in vogue today than I would like, but it's kind of interesting. And this is something we don't have in our portfolio, but it's something we talk about as we think. We try and think longer term. We try and think about what can change, what can happen, what does the world look like in 10 years as we try and look around corners. And you can buy farmland in Northwest Minnesota and pay $2,000 an acre, one-third the price if you can in East, of, of, of farmland in eastern Nebraska. Now, Northwest Minnesota you know, gets as maybe 80, 85 grow-day corn, and Nebraska's got 120-plus grow-day corn. So if global warming continues to be a thing, which I suspect that it will. Yeah, you're going to end up with more grow days, you know, 50% more grow days potentially in corn over the next, uh, you know, 15 years potentially that could make it a very interesting arbitrage. Now, again, trying to find ways to express that, you know, are challenging. So again, I want to emphasize it's not something we have in the portfolio, but it's I'm just trying to give it as an example, lay it as an example of the way we think. Didn't you guys own a container ship or something at one point? We own lots of ships. We <laughs> bought. We bought. Uh, when people hated shipping, we. Sometimes there's better ways to express a trade, an investment, a thesis, and you can do it in private, in the private sector. So we own a bunch of boats. We bought them when people hated them. Not so terribly high above scrap value, and and now it's it they've they've gone up a lot. What's the process for those coming across our desk? By the way, you know, like I feel like most of us don't have boats coming across our desk on the on the regular. Is this something? Is it traditionally through the banks, through the credit, just through? It's through different relationships. We look to. Uh, create relationships that that will help you know yeah. guide us to to be able to execute on a theme. So for the farmland example, we look for ways to go and try and take advantage. For shipping, we look for ways to take advantage. So we try we have lots of conversations. We'll we'll use our journalists, for example, try and uncover relationships. And we say, look, we've got capital. 
do you have, you know, do you have, you know, do you have need for some partners in this or what, can you um, show us opportunities? I saw a big line item that I think is newer. Maybe it wasn't from last time we talked, um, which was SPACs. What's going on? Well, SPACs had, uh, I think they, you know, when they, when they peaked, they peaked at more than 25% above their trust value. So you're buying these assets, these blank checks and paying, you know, twelve and a half dollars on average for, you know, per share for something that, you know, you were guaranteed 10. So it was a 25% premium that people were paying, you know, insanely for this optionality, you know, that, you know, for all kinds of people who aren't investors because they got, because they're, you know, because they played hockey real well or baseball real well, or they're a really good singer, you know, or, you know, whatever it might be that maybe they'll find a business. It was crazy the way they raised money. That's not to say that all SPACs were bad. That wasn't to say that all companies, you know, that were going public via the SPAC market as a backdoor, you know, were, were, were terrible opportunities, but 25% was crazy. So what we did was when the world collapsed, you know, in SPACs, I think it peaked in February of 21. Yeah. Uh, and we, we created a basket that's now, you know, you know, three and a half, four percent of the fund all below their trust value. So all on average, on average below across the board, but below $10. So if something good does happen, with one of these ex-athletes that happened to stumble across a company, every look, every you know, as the saying goes, right? You know, a, you know, blind, you know, a blind, a blind squirrel finds a blind chipmunk finds his acorn every now and again, right? So it, it can happen, and you could get this. You have this free option. So, and if it doesn't happen, we're guaranteed to get ten dollars back. Yeah, it was a lot more interesting when cash was yielding you almost nothing. Less interesting today when you get three percent on cash. Yeah, are those opportunities? drying up to a degree now that cash is becoming competitive or yeah. still not as much? Yeah, they're dried up. Your fund is kind of a unique animal, right? It can shift and move to different opportunities. How do you tell people how to position it? Like, cause it doesn't, a lot of today, advisors always want to talk about where something fits. Well, like Stylebox, where does this go? So where do you, where do you guys fit in? That's a fair question. For those of you who know our fund less well, you know, the, you know, we're a go, we, I started the first go anywhere fund, the FBA Crescent fund back in 1993. So we can do lots of different things and, you know, for better or worse, but lots of different things, equities mostly, but distressed debt, high yield bonds, convertible bonds, preferred stocks stroke on occasion, you know, shorting. If we've done one currency trade in our life and having bought yen puts a, a decade ago. And so we get you know, private, private credit. No, we actually made, We've invested a whopping eight basis points or so, and we made 10x. So it added yeah. 80 plus basis points over the next two, over in 2011 and 12. Yeah. So it, it worked out very well. But What's it? Because the yen right now has been falling out of bed. But, you know, in terms of, you know, for us, when we think about what we do, is like you can, we look very ordinary at times too, because if there's not the opportunity, we just don't get invested. We weren't going to go and buy high yield bonds with six, 7% yields. It just didn't interest. Because that's a, when you see these high yield index, you know, yields, they, they report a gross yield, not the net. There's still going to be defaults, guaranteed. And there's going to be some level of recovery. So the net yield's always lower. You're always going to net lower in a cash yield. And so we're very, very sensitive to that you know, as, we, as we put the capital to work. And so now we're beginning to see some more opportunities in these different asset classes again, which makes it interesting to us. And, and we've done private credit, you know, asset-based private credit. We've put out across our different strategies, you know, almost $900 million over the last decade in private credit and got about a 14.5% yield or so, you know, for that capital we put to work. I'm not tax efficient, admittedly, but 14.5% is pretty darn good. And we've only lost money in, in when one loan, you know, one loan along the way only lost 8% net of the, the yield we received. So we still like that as an asset class. And to the extent that you're finding good underwriters, 
you know, there's a lot of people who aren't very good at it. There's too much capital that's flowed into space. But so someone wants to buy your fund today. Oh, sorry, I didn't answer. Yeah. So sorry, your, your question though was, was how do you position it? So with all of those different things we do, we think about it as a, you know, the way we think about it is kind of a hub and a hub and spoke strategy. Because we operate and up, deliver an equity, have delivered historically an equity rate of return, global equity rate of return. And for people who want something more specific, they want to go do busted converts over here. They want to distress debt over there. They'll go and circle around it. Now, some people, you know, I you know, also will use this as the spoke, not as the hub, because we are doing so many different things. And look at this as a, I'm not saying one should do this. Look at this as a lightweight, you know, alt fund. But, you know, we look at ourselves and the way we allocate our capital internally, you know, for ourselves, we think about it as a hub. I got a better marketing. I just say it's the only fund you need. Say it's just your entire portfolio. You got a little bit of everything. We're going to be a little weird at times, but you guys got all the ingredients. We'll ask some of the questions I see on here. Other value investors, who do you particularly... Uh take a shining to who's doing a ride who do you like who's any mentors friends there's not a lot in the public fund space i have a lot of friends in the private you know fund space we'll watch to see what we a lot of these people are doing and bell post group in boston seth Quarman would be an example of that there's other other people like that across the across the landscape but more of my relationships are really in the private fund space so why, why do you think they all gravitate there? I mean, you're this lone public manager i mean seth's great because i love looking at the managers where you look at the 13 f's for me, at least. And I'm like, I don't know what any of these stocks are. You know, it's like, they're not traditionally like the hotel names where everybody owns them. They tend to be a little weird and different. They do a ton of private stuff too. They do, which we can't do given a public fund. So why do they gravitate to that? They're very good. They look the partnerships, investment partnerships, it gets higher fees. I mean, it's, it's economics. Yeah. Somebody wants to ask you about ESG. Where do you see particular value in ESG? I mean, look, ESG as a construct is I think it's an important, I'm going to shift over here into this sliver of shade that I, yeah. I can see right here because it's, he's smart to bring a, a hat. He's done this before. If you look at ESG and think about, you know, the three components of it, you know, environmental, uh, you know, and governance and social, it, it's, it's a company over time that doesn't treat its employees well, that's polluting the environment, that's not allocating capital well, it's probably not going to be a good investment over time. So it stands to reason that, that ESG makes sense as a, as a strategy. However, that said, there's been this like tipping point where some people have, have tilted so much towards this idea of ESG that they're really ignoring some of the other facts, you know, the surround they're buying businesses that, yeah, they, they, they're scored. And there's a, I can't remember which, there's a number of companies that score, give you these ESG rankings. But some of these companies, you look at some of these large ESG funds, they own a lot of these oil companies and, yeah, it's like, are they really that good to the environment? I mean, how do they end up in there? I'm, I'm not really sure. So I think as long as you're, we are mindful of it, and we do want to own good management teams that are that are kind and sensitive to the environment, and and are capital good capital. Because I use the example of of, of Charter Cable as an example. John Malone, you know, is the largest shareholder there, and he cares how his money is is how his money gets uh gets allocated. The capital gets allocated. So the the thirty plus billion of of cash flow that we expect to be generated over the next five years. We think it's going to be spent well in the form of either debt repayment or share repurchases, you know, et cetera. They've already bought back a ton of shares. Same with a, a CarMax, which has bought back, you know, 30% or so of over the last decade. So we're very mindful of that. But, you know, we don't actually look at the specific scores and we don't rank companies based upon some external external scorekeeper. For us, we just look at the different businesses to make sure that they, you know, they, they pass muster. While we're on buybacks, the, the new uh, legislation is going to have from the CEOs you talk to, is it going to have much of an impact with the uh, taxing the fee? 
Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, if if you tax anything, it's going to have an impact. But we'll see what happens. Yeah. Questions, anyone? While we're going. Hi. Do you think for people that are interested in investing solely or mostly in ESG, would it be better for them to direct index and build that portfolio as opposed to um, investing in like ESGU or any of the ESG ETFs? Well, I think that I mean. It's a pregnant question, right? Because it, it presupposes a certain capability. There's somebody else up here in the front who has a question. But it presupposes a certain capability to analyze these companies individually. So how likely are you or whoever's making that decision to go in and find the source, the, the, the investment, get the idea, do the work, and feel comfortable with the decision such that, you know, going back to Meb's earlier point, like where if the stocks are going to go down at points where you're going to have the conviction to own it or buy more, better yet, and ride it through to the other side as opposed to panicking out and selling. So I think one really has to start with what's their capability to buy individually. And if not, I think there's lots of good managers out there who aren't just ESG ETFs that are mindful investors who have an ESG policy statement in their firms. And you can find that usually, I think, on their websites. And that's probably the direction I would go if you wanted to do something like that. The hardest part for me has always been on ESG is the E, the S, and the G often mean different things to different people. You know, you're seeing this to me with a lot of the narrative around nuclear energy right now. You know, I mean, that was considered a really unpopular source of energy that that, that seemed to have 180 pretty quick. I, for me, it's a very personal decision, I think, more than anything. But I agree with that. Q up here. Hello, thank you for doing this. I'm going to ask a follow-up to uh, Bill's question that yeah. Meb asked, because I'm Bill. Um, so with Charter, for instance, right, on a, on a per-share basis, we're pretty much below or at the COVID lows. Uh, so the market is, like, telling you probably, like, T-Mobile or whatever is, is a real risk. So I, I guess as a, as a discretionary portfolio manager, at what point do you... Uh, and the answer may be never, but like, at what point do you look at something and say, okay, this is at COVID lows? Like, what's the market telling me and what am I maybe missing here? Well, I think that goes back to MIPS question about constantly re-underwriting everything you own, you know, constantly. First, it's, it's 2x COVID lows, you know, so it, it, you know, it's, it's still well above COVID lows. You know, the stock was in the low 200s and, you know, you know and they're, they're about, you know, and now it's, you know, over 400. So, or thereabouts. So give or take, you know, forgive this some point, but it's still well above COVID lows. But the quite, but it's still, I think you can, you'd still make the same point. Hey, Steve, this, the stock's down, stock's down from 800, you know, to 400. I mean, maybe you're wrong. So what these guys have is something that nobody else has. That doesn't mean it again, no guarantee it's going to work. I shouldn't say nobody else. One of the percentages, and that's Comcast. Back in 2014, they cut a deal with Verizon. And Verizon, you know, gave them, you know, the ability to you know, use their network for backhaul. And to go and sell wireless, you could go to you, if you're a Spectrum customer today, you can go get a package deal, get your get your broadband, you know, get your you know cable if you wanted it, you know, for the video side, and you can get your wire line and your wireless. And these other companies can't reverse engineer that, and they can't do that. And Verizon, you know, cut a great deal, you know, for you know for the benefit of Charter and Comcast. Now, it's not on the one hand so great for Verizon. You know, in a vacuum, but it's not. They don't operate in a vacuum. It's better for them to do it, you know, at the expense of, of say, you know, T-Mobile or Sprint or you know, somebody else. We're constantly looking to see what the market, what's happening to market share, what's happening to connects, disconnects. We're we're evaluating that stuff 
you know, constantly to see if there's some problem in the theme. So every business you buy, we lay out what the KPIs are, the key performance indicators. And we are just religious about trying to understand if they're still consistent, you know, like hitting, you know, the metrics that we've laid out for them. So it's important to, to constantly, you know, go back and, 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 and readdress those points. All right. Anybody got some follow-ups? We got a question here. It says basically value traps, anything that looks kind of like value-y that most people are cheap on traditional measures that... I think, let me take a step back and think about because, you know, for those of you familiar with the book Security Analysis, you know, the Graham and Dodd book that's now, you know, coming out with their seventh edition, your value investing is morphed. Originally, you know, value investing was about just buying, buying an asset at a discount. And so often that asset value was predicated on some hidden asset that might've been there. You know, it might've been real estate, Steinway Piano 20 years ago at t- real estate, you know, all over New York City or a number of great locations in New York City. And you could buy Steinway, you know, for, you know, for a very inexpensive price as a business and get all this real estate for free that if they ever really did something, you know, rational and shareholder friendly, it was, it would have been a, it was, it would have been a good investment. So, so many of those businesses, though, that, that had these traditional value investments as we knew them or, you know, were, or businesses that were more, were more likely to be disrupted. So let's just take Amazon, you know, for example. Amazon comes into being. They were originally a, you know, a, you know, a seller of a reseller of books. They ended up being becoming the everything store, as we all know, and probably everybody here uses, you know. And as we look at that, what, what Amazon you know, was doing, I mean, as we looked at it, we realized that this is really bad for retail in general. I've, I've owned retail, you know, so, you know, I started out as a bank and thrift analyst, you know, but I did a lot of retail back in the 80s working with this investment partnership and we sold all our retail. We, you know, we were like, we said to ourselves, this is not good for these retail businesses. We know it. They are the disrupted companies. So we ended up, you know, selling all of our retail and the mistake we made back in particularly the great financial crisis, candidly, was not buying Amazon. So our goal today is make where that, that margin of safety as a value investor with the past was predicated on the asset value of the business, assets within, you know, maybe it was a hidden asset, maybe it's right on the balance sheet, you know, is it more obvious, but, you know, it could be hidden real estate or, or, or an overfunded pension plan. Uh, maybe it's a contingent asset because of the lawsuit they might potentially win. Lots of different ways you could do it, but so many of those businesses were the disrupted businesses. So we morphed a number of years ago that didn't change as value investors because we've always invested with a margin of safety, but we became much more anchored to the idea of, of the quality of the business, not just the quality of what's on the balance sheet. And that candidly is a harder analysis and it's a more vol- it's more likely a more volatile stream of income that comes through in buying those kinds of businesses because the perception of what they might earn in the future changes so much more than the actual value of the real estate that that more traditional value investor might have owned. And when you think of quality, like what does that mean to you? Like a lot of, if you talk to the quants, it means something. But if you talk about like a, a, a business in general, is there particular metrics or things you look at? Yeah, we look at, at, uh, at normalized free cash flow is what we look at. And we look at the moat that that business has. And we, we first, when we bought Microsoft, I had never owned Microsoft, you know, going back to when it went public. And I certainly didn't own it and, you know, when, it, when it peaked in, in the first quarter of 2000. And Microsoft over that next decade generated earnings in the high teens, earnings growth in the high teens. And its stock, you know, a decade later, after generating earnings growth in the high teens, was still down a little bit from where it was, you know, at the end of 99, beginning of 2000. So we got involved because, well, people really hated it. This company was trading net of the cash, you know, at a low, 
at a relatively low multiple, you know, low, low teens multiple, net of the cash. And, and there's a lot of fears. You know, you asked the question, you know, Bill, about, you know, when you might be wrong. We didn't know Microsoft would be as good as it was. We had no idea. Sometimes, you know, you get lucky. And things ended up being a lot better than even we anticipated. But we set ourselves up for that optionality. We had a free option of those things working out really, really well. And, you know, we're there at a point in time where Microsoft, where the people are so fearful about changing form factors, where people aren't going to use Windows and they aren't going to use desktops. You know, they're all about the iPad. And so this is there. They don't have a place in this in in, in the digital future. They fell to that point in time. Since then, and obviously that hasn't been the case. Their cloud business has exploded. You know, the, the Windows is even stronger today than it was. It's now a, a subscription model, which it wasn't at the time. They're found ways to wring you know a little bit you know more dollars out of that out of that towel that was already there, and they found and they found new opportunities. So we're always looking for these kinds of businesses where there's, again, that misunderstood, but we, we go back to this trying to understand the businesses themselves. And we, again, we did not know it was going to be as good as it was. I don't want to tell you that we, there, there is no crystal ball. We're going to be wrong. Fortunately, we're right more than we're wrong, but we, we've been wrong and we're going to be wrong again. Just look for businesses that are oozing cash flow. Yeah. Simple. Or, well, well, or likely to use cash flow. Likely I mean, to. Microsoft was using cash flow at the time. You know, other companies, you know, um, you know, we expect will be if you normalize them for, you know, excess investments are making in other things, which was the mistake we made, candidly, with Amazon. We just, you know, the, the cash flow is being generated by one, the, 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 the data warehouse side of their business was being lost in the retail side of their business. And so they weren't losing the cash flow that we would have thought. But if we just normalized it, you know, we would have we would have owned it. And so shame on us. Well, this is close to my heart because I've been renovating a house for the last six months and the worst time and I don't know, thirty years to renovate a house. So I've been oozing cash flow the wrong direction though. So um, you guys on that note, uh, everyone give a big round of applause for Steve. Thank you. Appreciate uh, you for joining us today. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.